Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Finding Genius Nonprofit Foundation. Uh, today, I have a returning guest, Dr. Adrian Scheck. She's an associate research scientist at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix. Uh, she's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Life Sciences at Arizona State University and an associate investigator in the Cancer Biology Program at Arizona Cancer Center at University of Arizona. So we're going to go over uh, material for the cancer book. You've probably heard as a listener uh, numerous interviews that I've been doing, so here's another one. And Adrian, I think, will be a, a fantastic je- guest, has a lot of insight. So thanks for coming back. My pleasure. So yeah, uh, first question, believe or perceive that uh, cancer is a separate organism unto itself in the body. And if so, at what point does that happen? When it's a few cells, when it's a billion cells, and when there's metastases, like, or do you believe this at all? Honestly, I think cancer is part of us, which is why it's it's often difficult for our bodies to perceive it when it's uh, when it's just beginning. I think that there are alterations that happen in cells, whether you think they're genetic, epigenetic, metabolic. Personally, I think it's all of the above. But I think at some point, an alteration happens where the, the normal controls that, that cause our cells to grow when they should grow and stop growing when they should stop growing, uh, things of that nature get screwed up and things go haywire. And at that point, that cell begins to divide uncontrollably, grow uncontrollably, and, um, and have different behaviors with respect to how it responds to drugs and oxygen levels and, and nutrient levels and things. And at that point, you could say it's cancer, whether at what point it becomes cancer would very much depend on who you ask. I think if you ask scientists, they'll say, well, at some point, there is a single cell that is cancerous that, that causes the formation of a tumor. If you ask others, they might say, well, until it's really detectable, it's cancer, but does it matter if you can't detect it, if it's very small? So um, I guess that's a long answer to a a pretty open-ended question. I would say that as soon as cells cells become not under appropriate controls anymore, they have the potential to become a tumor. And whether our immune system recognizes them or not is going to make a difference as to whether that pre-detectable tumor becomes a detectable tumor, or whether it's kind of nailed in the bud and, and destroyed. Do you think there is coordination amongst cells in a given tumor or between a primary tumor and metastases? Yes, I think there is. I think that um, tumors are, by nature, heterogeneous 
fancy word for just different genetics. So if you look at individual cells within a tumor, uh, even though they're all tumor cells, they don't necessarily all have exactly the same genetic background. I think it's possible that they can help each other, whether it's on purpose or inadvertent. I would guess it's sort of inadvertent. We tend to anthropomorphize things, but um, I think some cells can actually make something that helps other cells grow, and that's paracrine. They help, they feed each other, essentially. Also, tumors are not only cancer cells. They also very often have normal cells mixed in with them, uh, whether it's blood vessels or, or various things. So all cells kind of create stuff that they put out into the environment, and then the cells around them react to that. So I think there very much is some interactions that go on. A very popular thing for people to study now with cancer is called the microenvironment, and that is what is happening really right around that cancer cell, not just distant. So the microenvironment around the, the tumor cells or the cancer cells can really have a big effect on what happens to the individual cells. With respect to metastases, that's a very interesting question. For a cell to metastasize or, or leave the primary tumor and travel someplace else, it takes a lot of different things to happen. So the cell has to break off. It has to be able to get into something that will help it travel, whether it's the, the blood or the lymph or, or, or some other fluid. It then has to be able to get out of whatever vessel allowed it to move. It then has to have whatever it takes to set up housekeeping elsewhere. And that's a lot. There's, it's estimated, I don't remember the exact number, but a, an astonishingly small number of the cells that actually end up being released into the blood, for example, actually can form a metastatic tumor. Astonishingly small. But, it, uh, but is the release due to a cord, like angiogenesis or you know, epithelial to mesenchymal transition? Are these coordinated activities of a tumor mass or are these just individual cells saying, hmm, I don't like this environment, I'm leaving? I honestly don't know, but I would have to guess it's probably a combination of both because the individual tumor cell has to have whatever genetics it needs to say, I don't like this, I'm out of here. But the environment that it's in also has to permit it to leave. What's, um, so I, I, th I think the answer is both. And unfortunately with cancer, it seems like all of the above is, is the most common answer. It is very interesting, though, that when we talk about stuff like this, different cancers have a propensity to metastasize to specific places. So, for example, brain tumors, generally tumors that begin in the brain, generally do not metastasize in the, in the classic sense of the word. They don't generally leave the central nervous system, the brain and the spine. Other tumors really love to go to the brain. So, for example, melanoma very commonly metastasizes to the brain. When it goes to the brain, it does not and, and this is true of lung, brain, breast, whatever tumor happens to have metastasized to wherever it happens to go, it doesn't then become a brain tumor from a molecular biology point of view. If a melanoma cell, for example, metastasizes in the brain, a pathologist looking at that tissue can tell that this is not a primary brain tumor, a brain tumor that began in the brain, that it is a different kind of tumor. And in fact, very often these, these tumors that travel, for example, to the brain, my background's in brain, so that's where I keep coming back to, their response to therapy is more like their original tumor and less like a brain tumor. In other words, a tumor that starts in the brain. So there's something about the, the tumors that allow them to travel and, and allow them to take, take up housekeeping, but they don't necessarily then become the same as the tumors that started in that area. Again, what drives angiogenesis? Is it a consensus decision? Or is it just the cells that are in a hypoxic or anoxic region of a given tumor crying out? They do that, but I would think they would need cooperation of the exterior cells of the mass to allow the angiogenesis to happen. I don't know. Well, what happens with something like angiogenesis, for example, is cells that are in a hypoxic environment turn on certain genes like uh, HIF1-alpha, for example, hypoxia-inducible factor. That protein then turns around and turns on other genes in the tumor cell. And it's probably, if it's a hypoxic area, it's going to be probably all the cells in that area are going to be doing this. They then send out signals that say blood vessels come here and grow. So vascular endothelial growth factor is, is the most obvious one. So essentially, the cells that are in this environment, they react to their environment, and they're reacting to the environment by sending out signals that other cells can then respond to. So from that point of view, yes, it very much is a conversation, essentially, is it sounds like that's what you're referring to. And that's what I, I think of it as it's conversation that tumor cells say, hey, I need this. 
I'm going to make this happen by spitting out vascular endothelial growth factor. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. And that's going to entice the blood vessels to grow and to come towards that growth factor, which means they're going to come towards me. So from that point of view, you're completely correct. It is like a, a conversation. Okay. Essentially. And then you think the, uh, the, the blood vessels are just following the gradient of signal. And that's how they, that's how they proliferate and go. I'm sure somebody who's an expert in angiogenesis knows the answer to this. I don't know the exact answer, but if I had to guess, I would say yes, only because cells will very often follow a gradient of growth factors. That's a, a common thing. What is interesting with angiogenesis is very often the blood vessels that are created because they're created so fast, they're kind of leaky. They're not exactly the same as our regular blood vessels, which are nice and tight and they don't really leak liquid. And I think part of that might be just that they're enticed to grow so quickly, so fast that they aren't exactly normal because normal, I don't think normal blood vessels grow quite that fast, but they do tend to grow in towards the hypoxic region. So from that point of view, I'd say, yes, they probably do follow the, uh, the gradient. What about um, extracellular vesicles? I mean, some people seem to say that, you know, cancer tumors put out a lot of customized EVs that enter into and interact with, let's say, metastases or other, you know, tumor sites, I guess, in niche construction and also just in maybe cell-to-cell communication between tumors. Have you observed that? And what, what do you think the role is there? Honestly, it's an excellent question, and it's really outside my area. Because I focus on brain tumors and brain tumors don't metastasize, it's not an area that I keep up with very much. Yes, tumors in general do put out extracellular vesicles. They do put out circulating tumor DNA or RNA. And in fact, an area of uh, a lot of work right now is is to capture that in the blood. So for example, if somebody has a, a brain tumor, if you could capture some of the tumor-associated DNA or RNA that's in the blood, you can actually do some analyses without necessarily having the tumor. With respect to interaction of specific vesicles, I'm afraid I'd have to tell you to, to talk to somebody else with that because uh, I think that's a little bit outside my, outside my uh, area of expertise when it comes to, particularly when it comes to metastatic tumors. Well, you know, since you're brain focused, what, what happens in the brain? So literally there's just going to be one tumor mass or there are multiple masses, but they all reside within the same tissue type in the brain. Uh, it depends on the tumor. Sometimes the tumor is a single mass. There is such a thing as multifocal tumors where uh, you'll see multiple foci of tumors. Whether or not they're connected very often is a question. Sometimes either on autopsy or, or with, um, I guess, at surgery, they can see a, a connection between two tumor masses that appear to be separate. And sometimes they can't find any connection and it looks like there are individual tumors. So the best guess is that tumor cells will migrate in the brain. They will walk around. So they, don't, they might not leave the brain or the spinal cord, but they can walk around in the brain and, and set up housekeeping someplace else in the brain in a different... So it's like a local metastasis in a way, yeah. right? In a sense, yes. But again, that's not all the time. A lot of times people just have a single tumor, but, gotcha. but the cells can move and they move, they can move. They, they typically are, are thought to move away from the central mass of the tumor, but not necessarily very far. So um, it's not like, it's not like a, a circular tumor where the surgeon can just lop the whole thing out. The cells will migrate. It's just a matter of how far they get and whether they set up another tumor. And when tumors grow, do they, grow, do they co-opt healthy cells or do they just come from them, come from their own. You know, it's just cancer cells that continue to divide. Like, again, as the tumor grows, where is its growth coming from? Interesting question. Excellent question. Most of the tumors that I can think of, they, the, the tumor cells grow and divide, and then they genetically change and they continue to grow and divide. I don't know that they necessarily co-opt a normal cell to become a tumor cell. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. However, having said that, and again, this is a little bit outside of, of the types of things that I generally study, but having, having said that, what tumor cells can do is, again, secrete factors, growth factors and various other factors, uh, cytokines, things like that, that will affect the cells around them. But whether they actually affect the cells around them to begin to, to basically become like a cancer cell, don't know about that. But they will certainly affect the behavior of the cells around them by things that they secrete. Yeah, I mean, would it be possible to make, I guess if you had an organoid, a tumor organoid, and you observed it grow, you were able to grow it and culture it in vivo at least, you know, what would it look like if you mixed in healthy cells with cancer cells? Has anyone done that to your knowledge and weighed it or looked at, you know, counted the number of cells, let's say? I'm sure it's been done with normal and tumor cells. I don't think I can recall the specific data. You, you can make balls of cells, essentially 3D culture, and you can mix in normal with tumor. Generally speaking, the tumor will outgrow the normal. What you would need to do for that, and it's possible it's been done and I'm not aware of it, would be to um, label the tumor and the normal cells differently, put them into a, a culture where they make these microspheres, and then essentially count the number of, uh, you know, which cells are growing better by looking at which ones are labeled red and which ones are labeled green. But again, then you have to figure out, is that because the tumor cells are changing the normal cells or simply because tumor cells typically grow faster than normal cells? And tumor cells do typically grow faster than normal cells. So if you mix tumor cells and normal cells, so for example, if you take a piece of tumor tissue and you put it into culture um, and you put it in with kind of standard cell culture media, not some of the fancier stuff that selects for something. But if you put it in standard cell culture media, if you have contaminating normal cells in there, which is not uncommon, the tumor cells will eventually outgrow the normal cells because normal cells will senesce. They will essentially die of old age. They'll only, they'll only divide a certain number of times before they die. And the tumor cells are immortal. They will continue to grow, but they will also grow faster. So they will typically outgrow the normal cells. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thought experiment, if you had two spheroids and one was 99% healthy cells and a few cancer cells, and the other one was 99% cancer and a few healthy cells, what do you think the trajectories would be of growth? I think, I think the tumor cells would outgrow the normal cells because they grow faster and because they're immortal. Okay. Well, I've heard of you know mice being injected with cancer cells, and when I've asked you know scientists how many does it take, uh, the, the answer seems to be usually typically a lot. It's not just you can put in one cancer cell and the mouse will get cancer. It seems to require millions of cells in order for it really to stick. I mean, have you observed that? What does that tell you? So, Yes. Well, it tells me, first of all, it depends on the cell type. Some, some it's millions, some it's, it's tens of thousands or, or even thousands, um, depending on the, the cell type. I'm not sure that it tells me anything about tumors in the way I think you're asking it. So when you, when you take cells and you inject them into a mouse, first of all, a certain number of them will live and a certain number will die just because of the, the, the manipulations that you're doing. So it's not like all of those cells are immediately going to start to grow like crazy. There's a certain amount of time it takes for the cells to kind of just begin to grow. You're also, it's also a pretty, it, it's the best model system we have, but it still is not the same as what happens in people, where do we know how many cells it takes before abnormal cells actually become a tumor that our body can't handle? I'd say, no, we don't know that. With mice, yeah, with injecting cells with mice, uh, you, some cells are more virulent than others. In other words, some are just really nastier and they just take off and grow much better. Others don't seem to do that. And um, so you're going to do it in a mouse without an immune system. So you can't say the immune system is affecting it. But if you're doing mouse tumor cells in a mouse, there could still be an immune response. So there's a lot, there's kind of a lot that goes into that. I'm, I'm not sure that you can really read a lot into that. Okay. I understand. And going back to heterogeneity, so I guess in tumors, there's genetic heterogeneity, there's epigenetic heterogeneity for sure. I would think there's localized microbiome heterogeneity. Like let's say we have a, yep. you know, a colon tumor. Each cell that is now different in a tumor would attract a different localized microbiome and have different metabolite trading set up. So what are, what are some other ways in which you've observed that tumors are heterogeneous? Pretty much anything you can name. Honestly, okay. tumors are... They shuffle their genes like a deck of cards. They tend to be unstable and uh, genetically unstable, meaning every time a tumor cell divides, you don't 
you've got a very high chance that the two cells that come from one cell when the cells divide are not going to be identical, which is where the heterogeneity comes from. So there's a, a lot that changes. I would say when I think of a tumor, I think you've got differences in the mutations, differences in the, the chromosomes, differences in the epigenetics, the metabolism, as you mentioned, but all of that actually turns around and affects the phenotype or the behavior. So there's differences in how the cells are going to respond to therapy, for example. There's, if you're talking about a tumor that might be metastatic, there's differences in terms of whether that tumor, the tumor cells can or can't become metastatic. I'm trying to think, what else can a tumor do? Pretty much anything a tumor can do. There's differences in how well the tumor will grow in regions that might be low oxygen, in regions that might be low, um, low food supply, whether or not the tumor cell is more glucose dependent, more glutamine dependent, what food it likes to, to use, how well, how the metabolism works in that particular cell. I think all of that can be different. And again, it's, it's really because at the genetic and epigenetic levels, there's all these differences and that that's kind of like a boulder rolling downhill. Everything that comes after that can be different. Yeah, I don't know how dangerous it would be, but you know, instead of chemo trying to uh, kill the fastest proliferating cells, are there substances that you can put into, you know, someone that would accelerate the growth of fast growing cells so that, you know, these tumor cells are already fast growing and changing, but if you put it into hyperdrive, maybe they would just literally create garbage that couldn't survive if they were pushed to divide even faster. It's an interesting concept. I don't think anybody would try it uh, for a whole lot of reasons. Ramping up a cell even more, it may self-destruct, it may not. And how would you, there's also questions about how you would do that so that only the tumor cells responded. You know, there's a lot of questions that it is an interesting idea. And there are people that are looking at increasing some of the things that tumors do, like reactive oxygen species, to see if that could make a difference. Yeah, I mean, in chemo, that's why people's hair falls out, I guess, and nails get brittle, because it affects all fast-dividing cells negatively. But if you affect all fast-dividing cells positively, yeah, I I know the the result could be very, very bad. But maybe it's something to test in mice and see if you get, like, super hairy, super long-nailed mice, but that also their tumors are blown up. Maybe that would happen. I don't know. Honestly, that's uh, that's that's a new one. But again, it would also, I would imagine the side effects of that would be uh, pretty astronomical. But yeah, perhaps probably. somebody who could figure out how to how to fine tune it. Well, yeah, maybe you, you pulse it. I mean, I, it's total speculation, but maybe you, yeah, you put the, the body into a state where the fast growing cells like go into overdrive for a 24 hour period and then you do the opposite or you stop. And, I don't know. It's just an idea. But when, since tumors are heterogeneous, though, do they tend to repeat the same types of mutations? I would think they do, right? So, like, uh, you know, we'll t- I guess we'll take brain tumors. Like, how many different mutations, let's say, genetically have you observed? And do they tend to repeat in tumors once they, you know, when they, when they start from nothing? That's kind of not an answerable question in some ways, in terms of how many mutations or how many changes can you find? The amount of work it would take to do that would be astronomical in terms of looking at a zillion individual cells. People are looking at individual cells and doing single cell work, but there's so much that changes that makes no difference. So there's, there's changes that make a difference and then changes that sort of don't in terms of... So for example, we've got two copies of every gene in our, in our cells. If one copy of the gene is damaged, but the other copy of the gene can do the work, the cell doesn't know the difference. If it's a gene where that's not the case, where you need both copies, for example, if it's, if it's a mutation that is not in the part of the gene that makes a protein, for example, or if it makes a change in the protein that doesn't change its behavior. So there's, when you do these analyses, there's a huge number of changes that you can find that don't affect the tumor. And then there's a whole bunch that do, and you've got to figure out which is which. So generally what's done is you look at what happens more than once. So there's plenty of changes that happen in a lot of cells. Or you look at cells that grow fast, for example, versus slow, and which, which mutations are the ones that grow fast and which are the ones that grow slow that are in common to those cells. So that's kind of the way you kind of have to do it because you can't really analyze each individual cell separately to see what is its behavior compared to its genetics when you're talking about a solid tumor. You can do that to some extent in the lab, but not, not really in, in a sense, in a way that's going to be helpful for a human or an animal model. Um, 
In terms of what happens more frequently, yes, there are definitely more common changes that are seen in tumors. Do they happen more commonly or do they just, or are they just a good thing for a tumor cell to have? I don't know that you can say it happens more commonly. You can say it's found more commonly, usually because it is a positive thing for a tumor to have. So when you think about tumors and you think about all the genetic changes that happen as these cells divide that are to a large extent random, tumors are kind of Darwinism speeded up. So all of these changes happen and then you get survival of the fittest. And there's lots of cells that die in a tumor naturally because when the cells are dividing, they don't get genes that they need to live. So they die. So that's not uncommon that there's dead cells in a tumor that's just a reflection of, of what happened after the, when its parent cell divided. Yeah, but I mean, if you know, like a KRAS mutation tends to show up most of the time in, in tumors at certain stages before chemo, maybe you could then study those particular cells with those particular mutations and craft a chemo that would, let's say, just go after those only, that particular mutation. And well, if you know, like the common ones that start, maybe you can do that, a, a specific cocktail. That's exactly what people are doing, though. They're looking at common mutations and or common, not necessarily just mutations, but common changes in the cell and trying to devise therapies specifically for those common changes. That's exactly what's being done. It's not a matter of whether it happens more frequently, it's found more frequently. So that probably, if, if you, how do I explain this? Okay. If you have um, two different mutations, let's say in cells, and one of them makes the cell grow much faster than the other, by the time that tumor is detected, most of those cells are going to have the one that made the cells grow faster because they outgrew the other one. It doesn't mean the other one isn't important. It just means that he who grows fastest wins. <laughs> so again, it's kind of survival of the fittest. So in terms of, of finding these types of changes and coming up with therapies against those kinds of changes, that's precisely what precision medicine is attempting to do is what mutations, what changes happen in the cells most frequently, and can we devise ways to to attack those particular changes in the tumor cells. The problem with the precision medicine is not all tumor cells have any given mutation or change. So you might find, if you take a, a biopsy of a tumor, you might find, oh, this tumor has, let's use your example, KRAS mutations. Let's use our, our KRAS therapy. And that'll kill the cells that have the KRAS mutation. But in that same tumor, there's going to be cells that don't have it. So what would be really cool is if you found the mutations, did that, and then when the tumor started to regrow or when you were capable of getting more tissue, find out, okay, what's left? What's the next thing we should attack? Because it's, it's going to be multiple therapies if you're going to start targeting things because the cells just don't all have the same targets and they change. But what about driving? Like, so do we know after a certain kind of chemo, what other mutations tend to show up? And could we drive, could we deliberately, you know, harass a tumor into mutating into a certain regime that's more vulnerable that we could then attack it with? There are studies that show that some chemotherapies promote more genetic instability, but it's not necessarily a specific mutation. What, so it's not like you could say, let's use this therapy and that's going to drive the tumor in a particular direction. And then we can attack that direction. What you can say is the therapies that we know about kill cells with certain behaviors. And the ones that are left are resistant to that. And then is there something in the cells that are resistant to the first therapy that allows us to get rid of them? I don't know if that's exactly what you meant, but it's, it's not a matter of driving the occurrence of a specific mutation as much as it's selecting for cells with a specific mutation by killing off the vast majority of cells. So for example, in brain tumors, chemo radiation, that kills the majority of the cells. The ones that are left come back and, and hurt the patient. So if you could figure out what is unique about the ones that are left before it starts to grow again, because once it grows again, that, that genetic heterogeneity comes back because these therapies aren't like radiation, for example, is, is a limited amount of time. The chemotherapy is a longer amount of time, but it is still selecting for cells that are resistant to it. And then when it comes back, you can look and see, okay, what's there? And are some of those cells sensitive again? Are most of them resistant? So it's, it's kind of like trying to hit a moving target. It's, it's a little bit like a whack-a-mole, but if you get rid of enough of the moles, there's fewer of them showing. And then maybe you can figure right. out how to 
when a tumor grows, does it does it tend to form, you know, let's say it's a glial cell tumor or glioblastoma, does it tend to form structures that are similar to the healthy cell structures in the brain? Or does it look like a Picasso where it's like there's certain domains that are organized but are jumbled together? Or is it totally like a, you know, like a Jackson Pollock mess? It's in the brain tumors that I've that I've seen when I've when I've observed surgeries, they do not look like normal brain. The surgeon can look at it and say, no, this is tumor, this is tumor, this is tumor. It doesn't look like normal brain. There are so some, it's, not, it's not even close, right? Or is it? Right. Yeah. They can, they can distinguish the tumor from the normal. So it does not look the same. Okay. All right. I gotcha. Did you like my artist uh, analogy? I need yes. a third one. Is a, yes, a very organized, deliberate one. But yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, no, it's not. Yeah. The, the tumors do not form organized masses, at least not in the brain. Okay. If you were to, I know this would be very expensive, but I don't even know if it's worth it. If you were able to do single cell analysis of a tumor, and you know, analyze the cells radially and reconstitute what cells are where in the tumor and what the mutations look like and everything. Could you computer model it and then go backwards to see how that tumor would have started and where the colonial lineages came from and kind of you know go back through its evolution? You think that's possible? That's a yes and no question. Again, we can do single cell analyses. There's some really really cool instrumentation now that allows you to take a um, a tumor section. And, and basically look at virtually at single cells and look at the, uh, the RNA, RNA-seq, so look at gene expression and things like that. So yes, you can do that the, um, at, at a single cell level. And it's, it's expensive, but it's, it's definitely not insane anymore. It used to be impossible. It's not impossible now. The problem with that is, and you can do it radially, obviously, because you can take the, the section of tumor and do that. The problem is that as these tumors grow, again, the genetic instability is such that you don't necessarily, if you follow it, if you follow the tumor back to the center, you're not necessarily following the temporal changes that are occurring in these tumors. In other words, just because you've got the cells in the center doesn't mean that that was the first cell that became a cancer because they're dividing and changing. Uh, People have done uh, studies where they look at sort of clonal expansion, looking at the cells to try to follow back what do we think might have been the first thing that happened? In some cases, there are some guesses as to what might be the, the first, you know, something that the first thing that happened. And usually if, if people look at something like that, what they say is, well, it seems like every cell or almost every cell has this, this mutation. So it was probably one of the first ones as opposed to the mutations, and I'm, I'm using the word mutation as a catch-all for epigenetic change, mutational change, metabolic change. It's not necessarily only a mutation, but what's in more of the cells is often thought to be an earlier event in the formation of the tumor. Now, it could also be an event that happened in the cells that grew the fastest, but the more cells that have a particular trait, the probably the earlier that event was in the formation of the tumor. But you can't, you can't just physically say, if I go from the edge to the center, will I get to the causative event that happened? Having said that, there are also specific differences that are found in the core of a tumor versus the periphery of a tumor because the cells are behaving differently. In the core, it tends to be a little bit more hypoxic or lower oxygen, and the cells are very crowded. In the periphery, those cells are more likely to be walking away. So... The genetics of, and, and there's been a lot of study done on that, the, the difference of the, the genetics of the cells in the center of a tumor versus the invading front. But it's, it's not a matter of what was the first cell to cause the tumor. Well, I mean, so there's spatially, right? Um, but there's also, again, the genetic rearrangements. Does anyone know if genetic rearrangement A leads to B, which leads to C? Does anyone know the pathways? Like, again, if in a set of tumors, let's say, I don't know, just say, well, let's say brain tumors for you. Like what are, what are the earliest caught brain tumors look like in terms of their heterogeneity versus later stage ones? Is there any, is there a common pathway that they tend to take or a common set of pathways? And if so, maybe then you could walk them back in time. What people have done is looked at the genetic changes that are in, for example, a GBM grade four brain tumor that the first time it was found was a grade four and the ones that started as a low grade tumor and progressed to a high-grade tumor. And there are specific genetic changes that are shown to happen 
in or, or, or are more prevalent in, an, in a low-grade brain tumor, and then there's additional things that happen as that tumor becomes a high-grade. They're not necessarily the same things, at least not, not all the same things, as the tumors that start as a high-grade, even though they look the same, the you know, survival, things like that is all, they look the same pathologically, survival and all that's the same. What does low-grade versus high-grade mean? Okay, um, good question. So most cancers have grades that um, is, an, is a, a clinical definition of sort of how bad the tumor is, for lack of a better way to put it. So for example, a low-grade tumor, uh, a low-grade brain tumor, for example, like an astrocytoma, would probably be more slow growing. Survival is a lot longer. It's not as invasive. It doesn't have areas of necrosis or dead tissue because it grows so much slower. And then when it becomes higher grade, when it it gains more mutation, so that might be removed. But very often when these tumors come back, they will have obtained more aberrations and they grow faster. They invade more. Survival is not as long when that's found. And then when they get to the highest grade, they've got even more genetic aberrations or metabolic aberrations, and they're even more invasive and even more resistant to therapy. So it's, it's kind of a, a hierarchy of how bad the tumor is, essentially, even though they all essentially start from the same type of cell or are thought to start from the same type of cell. And most cancers... Yeah, that's... That's like a phenotype scale, it sounds like. But in um, some some ways, yes. But there are genotypes and and epigenetics that are thought to follow these these different grades. So that's good. Yeah, that's excellent. But do yeah. they, do they, do, do tumors always start out low grade and then get higher grade as therapies happen over no. time, or do they sometimes start out high grade? No, absolutely not. They can start as a high grade. They can. Um, same, same tumor type, right? Yes. Start high so, grade. Okay. multiforme is a grade four brain tumor. Uh, it's it's kind of the worst adult brain tumor. You can get them through by starting with a lower grade and having it progress to a higher grade. Or there are people where there is no evidence of a lower grade tumor at all. And the first time that tumor is found, it's a glioblastoma. And they are genetically slightly different. They look the same pathology-wise. They're genetically slightly different. They... Um, are likely to happen in different age groups. So the, the ones that start as GBMs are a little more likely in older people, older population, although younger people can also have them. But they're, by the time they become a GBM, as far as the patient is concerned, they are the same. But some of the genetics can be different. But are they wildly different or are they okay. within no, a ballpark? Not necessarily, not necessarily wildly different, but they, they look the same to the pathologist and the therapies are all the same. It's not like there's anything else that, that you can really do if it's a GBM, unless well, there's... Well, why? I mean, I see a pathologist, but they're just looking at the mass. And then again, therapies are just the therapies. But if you're able to really characterize the heterogeneity for different types of tumors, different grades, et cetera, I would think then you can you know, create a more customized plan of what to do. For some things, yes. There are some mutations in some of these tumors, like IDH is a, is a mutation in... Um, in brain tumors, it's more frequent in some of the lower grades, and there are targeted therapies for that. So, you know, if, if a target is found for which there is a therapy, or if, a tar- or if there's a target that's seen a lot where somebody has figured out, you know, once, when targets are found, scientists and, and drug companies try to find therapies against those targets. Pretty obvious. But if that target is found, then yes, those therapies are used. But it's not, again, it's not a matter of all cells have it. And heterogeneity by definition means that you are not going to hit all of the cells because they don't all have these targets. But that's exactly what is done. The tumors are profiled. So, for example, a lot of places, the tumor is immediately profiled. So that some of the tissue gets sent off to a company that profiles all the different things that we know to look for or that they know to look for. And then they come up with, well, this tumor might respond to this or this or this. Is that helpful? Yes, it's helpful. Is it curing people right, left, and, and backwards? Not necessarily, because the sample, it's not like people can, it's not that a surgeon will take 10 different samples and send it off for 10 different analyses to get a, a more rounded view of the tumor. They'll usually send one, maybe two samples, and that doesn't necessarily show every single cell in the tumor. But Has I, anyone paid, you know, that's wealthier and said, 
I want like 10 different samples of this thing. I want you to characterize the heck out of it. I don't know. If someone, oh, I, I, I just wonder if anyone's uh, ever done a study doing that, even though it'd be expensive. In, in mice and things like that, yes. And in, in people, in terms of just doing molecular studies, even before, before some of these targeted therapies were available, where we looked at lots of different regions, yes, you can do that. And you can get an idea of a lot of what's going on in the tumor. Whether that necessarily translates to clinical utility at the present time is a big question. They, there are clinical, there's things that, that physicians can't necessarily just do without studies on it first. For example, mixing and matching drugs. It's not like somebody could say, find everything that's going on in my tumor and give me every drug at the same time right now. That is not a doable thing. It's not, to the best of my knowledge, it's not legal. Uh, could you do it one, then the other, then the other? Probably yes. But if, if drugs aren't tested together, you don't know whether those drugs will work together properly or whether they'll cancel each other out or whether the toxicity will be much higher than you would expect. I mean, there's all the stuff that goes into it. Is some of that being done in, in mouse studies and in cell culture? Absolutely. There's lots of mixing and matching. And when a new drug comes out, it's very often looked at in combination with other things. But it takes okay. a while to be approved because you can do some real serious damage if you're not careful. Even, even the over-counter stuff. So what people don't realize is a lot of people will read articles and say, oh, this over-the-counter, this herb supplement all of these somebody has said is good for tumors, I'm going to take them all. And then they don't tell their physician. The problem with that is sometimes those things actually make the therapies that are available work less well or increase side effects. So there's a lot that goes on in our bodies that is pretty amazing that we've got to be pretty careful about. I think the more studies like the ones you're mentioning where you're doing lots of different, you're looking at lots of different areas and looking at the regional heterogeneity and stuff. They're very important. And there are more studies like that being done, but they yeah. don't necessarily at this point translate to, okay, we, we found five potential targets. Let's hit this with five potential drugs. Yeah. Here's, here's a question. Here's something probably, it would be probably out of left field, but uh, for brain tumors only, since again, that's your focus. Do pathologists notice anything else that's coincident with, you know, brain tumors um, that they have like plaques, you know, showing that uh, the person's maybe on their way towards Alzheimer's or is there any, any brain structures or any things that show up that always seem to come along with tumors or frequently come along with them that don't seem to be associated with the tumor? Not that I'm aware of. Are things sometimes found that are incidental, especially in the genetic studies, when they send these, these tumors away to be profiled? Quite possibly, yes. But is there anything that specifically segments with brain tumors? None that I'm aware of. The other thing with the pathologists is they very often don't get a whole lot of normal brain. They might get an invading edge, but they're mostly focusing on the tumor itself. It would probably more be the genetic studies that might find something coincident, but again, they're only looking at the tumor tissue, not the normal brain. And I'm no. not aware if there's anything that coincides with the tumors in particular. Yeah. What, what do you think would happen if I, if I did a study where, you know, I got a hundred people that passed away with brain cancer and we resected the tumor and also resected healthy brain tissue and we compared them all. What do you think you would see across a hundred or a thousand of the same type of brain tumors? That the tumors have something, I mean, this has been not the normal, but the, the tumor tissue has been done um, and anybody can go and look at it by something called the TCGA, which is the, uh, oh, it's, um, it was done by the NIH. So the Fed, the feds did it and they looked at different, um, different tumor types and GBM is one of them. And they got lots and lots of samples and did lots and lots of studies on them. And like I said, people can go and they can look what they found. It's the Cancer Genome Anatomy Project, I think, TCGA. Cancer, yeah. Was it compared directly to that same patient's normal brain across the board? No. I think what you would find is that exactly what the TCGA found, and that is there are groups that, that tumors of the same pathology can sort of be grouped into particular genetic groups or epigenetic groups. People have taken this data, it's a huge amount of data, and looked at it in a variety of ways and say, well... A lot of the, the, the um, GBMs look like they have this, what they call a mesenchymal phenotype, or uh, they have, there's four names for the different genetic aberrations that are more common in those tumors. The normal, I think, is just going to be the individual person's normal. I don't think there's going to be anything that shows up that, that goes along with the tumor in the normal tissue. 
Okay, yeah, I'm just I'm trying to find a way to uh, put borders around the heterogeneity around the chaos. That's what I'm. I guess that's probably what I'm trying to do is where can we put bookends around it so at least it's not like so crazy that no one can understand it. If you figure that out, you'd probably end up with a Nobel Prize. Uh, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm being serious. It is a okay. so, so difficult because tumors are so damn adaptable and and so. Uh, because they keep shuffling their genes and then Darwin selects for the cells that are the most, uh, the strongest, it's really, really difficult. And it is, it is that heterogeneity, I think, that, that uh, makes them so tough to attack because there's, there's little, if anything, that you're going to find in every single day the same as that tumor grows. So, you know, this, I should have asked this question earlier, but how do you think cancer starts then? Do you think it's just a, a random mutation in a cell and off it goes? Or do you think it's like a, um, a forced adaptation under pressure, metabolic or otherwise, and then it leads to a maladaptation, which becomes cancer? There are some people that think it is a, a metabolic issue and the, and the screwed up metabolism uh, causes genetic changes, which then become cancer. There are people who think that there's a mutation or a genetic change that happens for one reason or another. Personally, the way, so I've got three slides that I show and it's three balls of yarn in three different colors. One's, one's labeled genetic, one's labeled epigenetic and the other's labeled metabolism. And when people say, how does cancer start? I take those three balls of yarn and I put them in a room with a bunch of kittens and I let them play. And what you end up with is a bowl <laughs> with this yarn completely snarled together. And I honestly believe that, that it's very hard to separate them because I think they all play off each other and they all alter each other. And I know there are people, Dr. Tom Seyfried is a brilliant man. He's, he's sort of the father of, of the uh, metabolism and brain tumor for brain tumors. And he thinks cancer is a metabolic disease, not a genetic disease. I think cancer is the perfect storm that all of these things play off each other. I don't know if we'll ever be able to figure out what the first thing is that happens in a person because it's so complex. You can, you can genetically engineer all kinds of things in the laboratory. You can cause the formation of tumors by transferring things from one cell to another, whether it's a mutated gene, a screwed up mitochondria, which is kind of the powerhouse of the cell that does a lot of the metabolism. There's all of these different ways you can make it happen in a lab. So to say which one way does it in a human, I don't think there is one way. I really don't. So we we do all these things to our body. For example, if you're a smoker, you are damaging DNA like crazy. If you go out and get multiple sunburns, you're damaging DNA like crazy. The beauty of this is our bodies are just exquisite in their ability to repair this damage. As you get older, there's more. So every time your, your DNA divides an insane number of times in going from an egg and a sperm getting together to a 60-year-old adult or an 80-year-old adult, whatever you want. And every now and then a mistake is made. And the percentage of times that mistakes are made are extremely small, but they're not, it, it's a, it exists. It is an, it's a finite number. And a lot of times those mistakes can be repaired. And a lot of times those mistakes don't matter if they're in an area of the genome that's not used, for example. But every now and then a mistake is made that matters. And if it's not repaired by our normal repair mechanism, it stays. If it is a mistake that is going to affect how the cell grows, for example, could it lead to uncontrolled growth? It probably could. Is the number of times that happens that it forms a cancer probably astronomically small? Yes, considering how often these things probably happen. Can you increase the number of times that happens by damaging your DNA through exposure to chemicals, smoking, sun, what, you know, anything you can think of that damages DNA. Yeah, you probably can. You're causing more damage and you're making it harder for your body to repair it. Are metabolic issues that occur, for example, if you tend to run very high sugar, is that bad? Yes, because you've got a lot of insulin growth factor and stuff. Are you more likely to promote the formation of cancer? Probably. If you have cancer, I can promise you that you're more likely to do poorly if you're hyperglycemic or you have very high glucose, uh, that's been shown a zillion times. Um, so is it reasonable to think that having very high sugar 
might promote getting cancer? Possibly. Are there epidemiologic studies that have been done about diabetics and tumors? Yes. Are they very, very clear cut that an uncontrolled diabetic gets cancer more often? Sometimes some, some studies say yes. Some studies say, well, maybe not. Some studies say, well, depends on how high. So there's, there's a lot that goes into it. There's no one thing like high glucose, for example, that's going to cause cancer. But when you've got all of these things together and you've got what I call the perfect storm, then yes, I think you know, that's, that's where it comes from. I know that that's a very unsatisfying answer because I don't know that we can pinpoint any one thing. And I don't think, I think if you look at 10 different incidents of cancer, you might find 10 different initiating events. I don't think it's going to be the same for all cancers or for all people. So it, it makes it really hard to go back and find that initiating event. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Adrian, we're just about out of time. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research in particular? Well, the, probably the easiest thing is to search my name, Adrian, middle initial C, last name Sheck, PhD. There are a lot of the talks I've given have been um, videotaped over the years. Uh, there's a lot of there's repetition as, as we got more and more information, you always have to go back and give the beginning. So it probably doesn't matter which talk you listen to in terms of the basics are there. My work is on the use of ketones in the ketogenic diet as a adjuvant therapy. In other words, as an additional therapy in treating brain tumor. It seems to make radiation and chemo work better, at least in our mouse model and in the research laboratory. And I've been working with some physicians who are doing this with patients and stuff, just you know, talking to them and getting samples and things. So that's probably the easiest way. If somebody wants to read the original publications, most of my publications, probably all my publications are in what's called an open access journal, which means you don't have to pay for it or or be involved in a university. You can go on National Library of Medicine, which is PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D, and just search for my name and the publications will come up, the ones that are on my direct research and then some of the other things I've been involved with. Uh, and like I said, they're in open access, which means you can just get a copy of them directly. So that's that's probably the easiest ways to find out. Very good. Adrian, it's always really good to talk to you. You, you have, uh, I don't know, very interesting thoughts and you're not just black and white about everything you say. And uh, I think it leads to more insights. So thank you again for coming back. Thank you. And you always ask very interesting questions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.